Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, welcome to another episode of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, and because I have written a book about con women, people are always asking me if Anna Delvey is in my book. I'll tell you right up front, right up top, she is not. She was actually in my book, Proposal. So for a nonfiction book, you don't write it and then sell it like you would a novel. You write a proposal about the idea, and then you sell the proposal. And then once you get a deal, you actually write the book. So in my book, Proposal, I said that I was going to do a chapter on her. But in the space between selling the book and writing the book, so much material came out about her. Netflix is doing a show on her. HBO also bought the rights to do a show on her. I just was like, okay, I can't add anything to this conversation. I don't want to do a chapter in my book that's just like a glorified Wikipedia entry of things everyone already knows. So she's not in my book, but that hasn't stopped a lot of people from asking me my opinion on her and thinking that I'm going to have this interesting hot take because I've written about other con women And I've resisted this for a while because, to be frank, I didn't have a very interesting opinion on her. I thought she was, you know, an interesting scammer like all the other women that I've researched. I found her Instagram presence kind of annoying and intriguing in equal parts. But I didn't have some big takeaway about her. So I decided to research her. I decided I needed to learn more about the mysterious Miss Delvey. And I have the privilege of time now. Like we all read the cut story and the Vanity Fair story when they came out in 2018. But now we have the privilege of the trial has already happened. We know what was said in the courtroom. There's just a lot more material out about her. So I sifted through it all, did some digging. And I think that I do have an opinion now. I think I do have my own spin on her story, my own takeaway. But of course, you'll have to listen to the end of the episode, (laughs) to the final moments of the story before I reveal what that is. If you think you know everything about the Anna Delvey story, listen to the episode anyway. There's some interesting new details in here that I've dug up. If you don't know what I'm talking about and you're like, Tori, why did you start this episode just name dropping someone? I'm so confused. Don't worry, I'll walk you through it step by step. We'll get into it, the intrigue, the glamour, the lies. So come with me, listeners, to a faraway time and place, a place that feels like it was another world. 2017, New York City. The article was embarrassing. The photo was unflattering. The girl in question was furious. On July 31st, 2017, the New York Post published an article with the headline, Wannabe Socialite Busted for Skipping Out on Pricey Hotel Bills. It was accompanied by a grainy photo of a frizzy-haired girl in a black dress, And the article explained that a 26-year-old woman had skipped out of two fancy Manhattan hotels 
without paying her bills for $11,518 and $503.76. A few weeks later, the girl treated herself to a fancy lunch, complete with several drinks, and then tried to leave without paying again. There was little in the article to suggest that this was a woman with a sharp brain and a deep understanding of human nature. And Anna Delvey, the wannabe socialite herself, hated the article. She wasn't trying to be a socialite. She was trying to be a founder, and the article totally missed that. But she shouldn't have worried. Her press coverage was about to get a lot fancier. The photos of her were about to get a lot more flattering, and she was about to get far better nicknames. The Soho Grifter, the Magician of Manhattan. The New Yorker would call her a folk hero, and Shonda Rhimes would produce a show about her life, and Etsy would sell mugs and t-shirts about her. It wasn't going to be all glitz and glamour. She was going to prison, but she was also going to get super famous. In 1991, the wannabe socialite was born Anna Sorokin in Russia. She moved to Germany when she was 16. She never learned to speak German that well, though she'd later tell people that she was German. She lived in the country and went to a high school in a working-class town. Her dad used to be a truck driver, and then he ran a heating and cooling business. Nothing glamorous. She couldn't wait to get out of there. I looked at these people and I thought, there is no way that this can be my life, she said later. After high school, Anna began broadening her horizons. She moved to London, where she dropped out of college, and then Berlin, where she interned in fashion PR, and then Paris, where she got an internship at the super cool French magazine Purple. That magazine covered fashion, art, and culture. Anna loved fashion, art, and culture, or at least she loved wearing fashion and name-dropping art and being in close proximity to culture. And she knew that a designer sandal and an Instagram post from a hot art gallery were worth a lot in that world. All of this, the traveling plus her rent and whatever else she needed, was paid for by her parents at first. They had high hopes for her, and they trusted her. They wanted to fund their daughter as she moved into her future, which was blindingly bright. It was in Paris that she began to go by Anna Delvey. She didn't overthink her new last name. She more or less picked it out of a hat. But it sounded slinky, sophisticated, and a little bit like DeVille. She used her new name in her Instagram handle, and she bought a phone case monogrammed with A.D., It wouldn't really be fair to call Anna Delvey an alter ego. It was more like Anna had shed the skin of her humble background and was now stepping out as her newer, brighter self. Anna Delvey went to exclusive parties and wore designer clothes. She schmoozed with fashion industry insiders and posted selfies with them on Instagram. Later, the website Artnet wrote that her well-curated Instagram account was a key tool when it came to projecting the crisply curated fabulousness that she parlayed into a jet-setting lifestyle. She would often post photos of trendy art pieces with captions that conveyed her insider knowledge. 
Under a piece by the painter George Kondo, she just wrote, Kondo. She was all about the, if you know, you know, attitude. Against this backdrop of art and fashion, Anna began to scam. She got herself introduced to Michael Zufu Huang, a young, hot art collector and museum founder. When she heard that he was going to the glamorous art exhibition in Venice called the Venice Biennale, she was like, oh, me too, and she asked Michael if he could find her a room. He put their plane tickets and hotel on his credit card without thinking twice, and she promised to pay him back. He did find it kind of weird, though, that when they arrived in Venice, Anna didn't have any invitations or plans of her own. She just followed him around. After the exhibition was over, Anna didn't pay him back, but Michael kind of forgot about it. She owed him a few thousand dollars, and that just wasn't a significant amount of money in their social scene. Sure, Anna had her quirks. Sometimes she randomly asked to crash on friends' couches— and she could be elusive about her background. But who cared? Rich people were quirky. Everybody knew that. Even when Anna was just plain rude, people saw it as more proof that she was who she kind of vaguely hinted that she was. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors who, unlike Anna, are not scammers. All right, guys, raise your hands if sometimes you feel stressed. I do this thing. It's such a cliche human thing. I'm annoyed to admit it, but I lay in bed and I can't sleep and I replay every slightly awkward interaction of the day, every unanswered email, which is why I was excited to discover the Sunday Scaries. (laughs) Sunday Scaries are a deliciously cute, vitamin-boosted CBD gummy. They are something where you can take them, and in about 20 minutes, you'll feel chilled out, the edge is taken off, you'll still feel like yourself, but you can maintain your composure and you don't have to dread Mondays anymore. Sunday Scaries were started out by two stressed-out friends who just wanted a healthier way to relax, and to prove how amazing they are, I got you 25% off. So visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code CRIMINAL for your discount. That's promo code CRIMINAL for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. They're freaking amazing. Our second sponsor is Daily Harvest. Okay, you guys, sometimes, many times, I do not have the time or energy to cook healthily for my family. I'm a writer, a podcaster. I barely have the time to tell you this ad. And I'm also a newish mom. And sometimes it's just like, how am I going to get broccoli in my family? I don't know. I can't. We're ordering pizza again. And I don't feel great about that. So I was thrilled when I found a Daily Harvest box at my door full of things like almond milk, healthy flatbreads, healthy smoothies with like spirulina and crazy healthy ingredients in them, healthy veggie bowls. Daily Harvest foods are frozen, so you can keep them in your freezer till you're ready to use them. And then they take literally minutes to prepare. You don't have to overthink any of your meals. You can just like have them when you need something healthy. They never use preservatives, sugar, anything like that. And they are committed to minimizing their environmental impact. So you don't have to feel bad about that part of your lifestyle. So if you want to get started today eating delicious, healthy foods, go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code CRIMINALBROADS for 25% off your first box. That's promo code CRIMINALBROADS for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. 
dailyharvest.com. Anna had spent plenty of time in glamorous cities, but for a young woman with big dreams and an open relationship with the truth, it was inevitable that she'd end up in the city of idealists and scammers, New York, a city where a man once sold the Brooklyn Bridge twice. She moved there in 2016 with a mission, as she told her friends and Marks. She wanted to open a members-only art club, the Anna Delvey Foundation. It would have all the hippest names in art on display. There would be restaurants, a juice bar, a whole immersive experience. And she'd found the perfect space for it. She wanted to lease the Church Missions House, which was a registered New York landmark. It was a gorgeous, towering building decorated with turrets and stone arches, the sort of building that most people would gape at in awe and never think for a million years that it could be theirs. Anna, though thought that it could be hers. And she started making that plan a reality, sort of. She had made friends with a man whose family owned a real estate advisory company. And so she told people that he had helped her get the lease for six whole floors of the church missions house. An executive at her friend's company started setting up meetings for Anna with people in the food and beverage industry, where they discussed things like where her juice bar would go. The problem, of course, was who would pay for the juice bar and everything else. Anna told people that she had family money, a big, juicy trust fund, but that it was all tangled up in Europe in Swiss bank accounts and such, and so she needed a loan of about $25 million. One of her friends put her in touch with a lawyer who put her in touch with a real estate lawyer named Andy Lance, and he put her in touch with banks and investment groups. Andy Lance was fully convinced that Anna was legit. He sent these investment groups emails like this one. Our client, Anna Delvey, is undertaking a very exciting redevelopment of 281 Park Avenue South, backed by a marquee team for this type of venue and space. Most shockingly of all, he sent his work emails in Comic Sans. Anna had plenty of documents showing that her millions— her 60 million euros, to be exact, existed. It was just that all the documents were fake. On November 21st, 2016, she waltzed into City National Bank in Midtown, saying that she was a German heiress and that she had the bank documents to prove it. She asked them for a $22 million loan in order to launch her Anna Delvey Foundation. City National Bank denied her the loan. So she tried the same thing at nearby Fortress Investment Group, And they told her that they'd need a $100,000 deposit from her for legal and due diligence expenses. They needed to prove that she was who she said she was. But where in the world was Anna Sorokin, the Russian immigrant from rural Germany, going to get $100,000? From thin air, of course. Anna went back to City National Bank and convinced one of their representatives to let her overdraft her account— which is basically like taking out a temporary loan from a bank. Now, City National Bank wasn't going to let her have the $22 million she'd asked for, but she was clearly convincing enough to get 100000 She promised them that she was going to wire them funds to pay back the $100,000 right away, and they gave it to her. 
Now flush with cash, Anna took it back over to Fortress so that they could get busy confirming that she was who she said she was. Over the next few months, Fortress tried to verify her German heiress story, spending about $45,000. They emailed back and forth with someone named Peter Henneke, who claimed to be her family's accountant, but who was really just Anna herself. Peter, quote-unquote, said that her family's wealth was all based on an extensive art collection from medieval times. Now, by the beginning of 2017, the bankers from Fortress Investment Group were no longer sure that they were dealing with someone legit. They noticed things like Anna had a Russian birthplace on her German ID card, but a German birthplace on her passport. They couldn't get in touch with the people she claimed were her bankers in Zurich. Before long, they felt like they had, quote, heard enough nonsense on the transaction, and so they withdrew. Anna tried to get them to change their minds, sending emails like, Seems like you're upset about something. I never pretended to be a big developer or anything similar. I did my best to cooperate and do everything as quickly as possible. Everything I do now seems very logical to me. Let me know if you think otherwise. A lesser scammer might have been sweating through her Balenciaga by now, but Anna was perpetually cool under pressure. I haven't met that many people who resemble me, she'd say years later. My ability to handle stress is pretty high, and I don't know where it comes from. I was just always like this. Anna hadn't totally struck out with Fortress Investment Group, though. A month after her loan was rejected, one of the bankers from Fortress began sending her flirty texts like, I'm forcing myself not to kiss you because you are insanely beautiful. And let me come upstairs and say a proper goodbye. Later, in court, this banker would say that he was just trying to network with Anna, and Anna's defense lawyer would laugh out loud. Anna refused his advances. She had money on the brain. Fortress had only spent $45,000 of the $100,000 that she'd swindled from City National Bank. So now she had the rest of it, $55,000, to play around with. If you already know the story of Anna Delvey, It's probably because two big articles about her came out in the spring of 2018. There was one in The Cut, written by a journalist, which ended up being the sixth most read story of the year. And there was another one in Vanity Fair, written by one of Anna's former friends, a first-person account of being scammed by her. The articles were full of glittering details. Dinners with endless white wine, luxury designer goods, $400 eyelash extensions— Her friends at the time noticed how Anna seemed to have money coming out of her ears. She would spontaneously buy $4,500 worth of personal training sessions, for example, and she often paid in cash. No one knew it at the time, but these expensive habits were funded by that $55,000 that she'd kept from her failed fortress loan. 2017 would be Anna's last year as a free woman for a while. But Anna started it off with a bang. In January, she hired a publicist and threw herself a glitzy birthday party full of guests from the worlds of art, finance, venture capital, and real estate. She even invited Michael Zufu Huang, her old friend who she'd scammed for free tickets to Venice. 
Michael was surprised when he got an invitation, but he showed up at the party anyway, which was held at a restaurant called Sedell's. As he mingled, he realized something kind of creepy. No one at the party actually knew Anna. They'd just been invited by her PR person. Michael was even more surprised a few days later when he heard from the restaurant itself. They'd seen his photo on Instagram because Anna had tagged him in a picture from the night. And so they sent him a DM asking for Anna's contact information. She'd given them a fake phone number and a fake credit card, and she'd skipped out of the party before the bill was due. With that, Michael realized that all the little red flags he'd noticed in Anna were adding up to something bigger. He was dealing with a scammer. It confirmed all my doubts, he said. He pressured Anna to pay him back for their time in Venice, and she finally Venmoed him using an account with a different name on it. He took the money and blocked her. But Anna had bigger fish to fry. She was busy moving into a super cool five-star hotel called Eleven Howard, which was owned by the same guy who owned the church mission's house, the space that she was planning to turn into the Anna Delvey Foundation. You follow? So because she knew the owner, and because she talked a big talk about wire transfers, the hotel let her move into a $400 a night room without giving them a working credit card. She befriended the concierge, Neff, by slipping her $100 tips, and she made the place her own. As Neff said later, she ran that place. You know how Rihanna walks out with wine glasses? That was Anna. Anna filled her days with foot massages, manicures, saunas, personal training sessions, and dinners at fabulous restaurants where she'd invite everyone from CEOs to actors like Macaulay Culkin. She befriended the chef at Le Coucou, the hottest new restaurant of the year, and he'd whip up her favorite dishes just for her. She spent hundreds of dollars on highlights and eyelash extensions. She toured massive apartments. And she did it all in workout gear. Expensive workout gear. Sounds fabulous, right? But if Anna was a fake, poor little rich girl, she still led a rather lonely existence. She didn't have a lot of friends during this period of her life. She had Neff, the concierge at the hotel, and Rachel Williams, a photo editor at Vanity Fair who met Anna in a club one night when Anna arrived with bottle service, of course. She had her personal trainer, who was kind of a mother-slash-guru figure in her life. And that was about it. She wooed them all the same way, with money, with cash. She paid for everything. Because of that, it was easy to stay friends with her, even when she was entitled or rude or spent too much time clicking around on her phone. Behind the scenes, though, Anna was having cash flow issues. One night at a restaurant, Neff watched in horror as Anna gave the waiter a long list of credit card numbers and none of them worked. So Neff had to pay the tab, which was $286, a huge amount of money for her. She ended up having to transfer money over from her savings account to cover it. A much larger cash flow crisis was unfolding at the 11 Howard Hotel when management realized that they had no working credit card for the snippy German heiress who'd been staying there for two months and now owed them $30,000. But Anna didn't panic. She deposited $160,000 of bad checks into a bank account and withdrew $70,000 of it before the checks bounced. Once again, she'd narrowly avoided being caught. With her debts paid, sorta, 
What do you think Anna did next? Did she buy a sensible pair of shoes and a nice suit and start going to job interviews? Did she open up a 401k? She rented a private jet, of course. The rental cost $35,000, but Anna name-dropped the company's CEO, and he assured his coworkers that she was legit. She took that private jet to Omaha, determined to attend the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting where people like Warren Buffett rubbed elbows with people like Bill Gates. And then she took the jet back to NYC and told the company she'd been locked out of her Gmail account, and that's why the payment hadn't come through yet. Eventually, she sent them forged wire transfer paperwork. It was incredible to think that a company had let her rent an entire private jet without paying a dime. But as someone from the company said later in the courtroom, we all sort of collectively believed that people tell the truth initially. The hotel that Anna had been calling home wasn't happy with her payment of $30,000, though, because she still hadn't given them a legitimate credit card to keep on file. So while she was away at the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting, they locked her out of her room. Anna came back to New York furious and told her pal Neff that she was going to buy websites in all of the hotel managers' names so that they'd have to pay her if they ever wanted to own their own domain name. This was a trick she claimed to have learned from Martin Shkreli, the infamous pharma bro. Instead of giving the hotel a credit card, Anna decided to move out, like out-out. She needed to leave the States to reset her visa, she told her friends. So why not go to Morocco? She wooed them with promises of an all-expenses-paid trip to a Marrakesh hotel with a private butler and a private pool and the low, low price of $7,000 a night. Neff couldn't swing the trip. It was impossible for her to take that much time off work. And her mom had a bad feeling about the whole situation, saying, nothing in life is free. But Anna, Rachel, and the personal trainer got on the plane, along with a videographer, because Anna claimed she wanted to make a documentary about her art foundation, and so she needed to get comfortable in front of the camera. Rachel put the plane tickets on her credit card, and Anna promised to pay her back. In Marrakesh, things were decadent at first. They drank rosé and swam in their very own private pool. They went shopping for kaftans, and Anna ordered two custom versions, one in black linen, one in white. When it came time to pay for the kaftans, though, her card was declined. But that sort of thing often happens with international travel, right? Out came Rachel's trusty credit card again. Over the next few days, hotel employees kept flagging Anna down with increasing urgency. They had realized that there was no working credit card on file for her $7,000 a night private guest house. Anna pretended that the interruptions were an irritating nuisance, something to do with banks and travel and how frustratingly boring. But it was becoming increasingly clear to Rachel that there was a problem with her friend's finances. The drama culminated on the fourth day of their trip when two men, goons, one article called them, started following Anna around and wouldn't let her out of their sight. Eventually, the inevitable happened. Rachel had to put everything on her credit card. The total came to $62,000, which was more than Rachel made in a year. 
Back in America, a traumatized Rachel tried and tried to get her so-called friend to pay her back. Seeking reimbursement from Anna became a full-time job, she wrote later. Anna always had an excuse, or ten. At one point, Rachel showed up to Anna's hotel room in the morning and followed her around until 11 p.m., demanding payment. Anna spent the entire day making excuses, promising that the payment would arrive soon, and eating expensive food at a fancy restaurant. But the fancy restaurant meals were more of a smokescreen than ever. By July, Anna had nowhere to stay. She'd been kicked out of two more hotels after her promised wire transfers never came through and after she never gave them a working credit card. In what is now an almost iconic line from that Cut article, Anna was, quote, effectively homeless, wandering the streets in threadbare Alexander Wong sportswear. There's often a point in crime stories where we see the main characters start to flail and grow desperate. It's like they feel the authorities closing in on them. Anna was now giving excuses that her friends called Kafka-esque. She was begging to crash on their couches while still maintaining her German heiress veneer. When several of them staged an intervention, she simply would not admit that she had lied about anything. Even when one of them pulled out an article saying that the church mission building had been rented to a photograph museum, thus revealing that her most grandiose lie, the lie that she was going to turn that building into the Anna Delvey Foundation, Anna wouldn't admit defeat. She called the article fake news. Rachel says that during this intervention, she saw Anna's face go blank. Not long after the failed intervention, Anna deposited a few more bad checks into a different account and, with two hotels pressing charges against her and a pending court hearing, she skipped town. Anna flew to California and checked herself into the celebrity rehab clinic Passages, which costs a reasonable $60,000 a month. Her friend Rachel went to the authorities, and they convinced her to turn on Anna. So Rachel flew to Los Angeles and persuaded Anna to emerge from rehab and meet her for lunch. When Anna showed up at the restaurant, Rachel was nowhere to be seen, but the police were there. Later, Anna called the whole sting operation extra. She was sent to the notorious New York jail Rikers, where she quickly learned that it was a dog-eat-dog world and there was only one way to earn respect. You kind of need to do some crazy things just to show them, and then you'll just go by your notoriety, she said later. She racked up multiple infractions and spent some time in solitary confinement. But it wasn't all bad. While in Rikers, awaiting trial, she signed a lucrative $320,000 Netflix contract for the rights to her life story. If Anna became famous when the articles came out about her in 2018, she became super famous when her trial started in 2019. Her lawyer painted her as just another dreamer, come to New York to hustle hard. Through her sheer ingenuity, she created the life that she wanted for herself, he said. Anna was not content with being a spectator, but wanted to be a participant. Anna didn't wait for opportunities. Anna created opportunities. Now, we can all relate to that. There's a little bit of Anna in all of us. Her fashion in the courtroom was the subject of endless scrutiny. 
she worked with a stylist. She showed some cleavage. She switched to a more modest wardrobe when her lawyer thought that it would play better with a jury. And she had multiple breakdowns when she wasn't happy with her wardrobe options. Rachel testified against her and cried on the witness stand, calling her time with Anna the most traumatic experience I've ever been through. But the jury was skeptical of Rachel, since she'd accepted so much free stuff from Anna. And because of that, they didn't find Anna guilty of swindling her friend. But they did find her guilty of other charges, second-degree grand larceny, theft of services, and first-degree attempted grand larceny. She was sentenced to four to ten years in prison. The day after her sentencing, she told the New York Times that she wasn't sorry, she regretted nothing, and that she'd do it all again. From prison in upstate New York, Anna continued to make her mark on society. The October after she was sentenced, publications like Elle, Yahoo, and Refinery29 instructed readers how to dress up like Anna for Halloween. The costume? Thick black-rimmed glasses, a plunging little black dress, and a black choker necklace, all of which she wore in the courtroom. Anna seemed to have mysterious powers in prison. She kept posting on Instagram somehow, things like funny little sketches of herself lounging about in contraband Miu Miu sunglasses— When Vanity Fair sent her account a DM, the person posting the drawings responded, identifying themselves as a close friend. Another Instagram post of hers included the Godfather-like declaration, If I want to talk to you, be assured that I will find a way to get back to you. She also wrote snarky, clever, cynical blog posts on her website, AnnaDelvyDiaries.com, which has since expired, She boasted about doing lots of yoga in jail. Or was she joking? It was hard to tell. And she wrote open letters to people like Donald Trump and Harvey Weinstein about the nature of fame. Her posts were full of lines like, My deviant tendencies aside, I think I'm such a good person in general, and so many great things are happening to me already. And whoever said otherwise, thank God I never listened. She was irritating and smart. Narcissistic, but self-aware about it. You hated her, you loved her, you couldn't unfollow her. Rumors flew about what exactly she was doing in prison. Did she have a girlfriend? No comment, she said. Fans sent her mail. Letters, chocolate, caviar, and even underwear. And then in February of 2021, Anna Delvey was suddenly out on parole. Her sentence had been cut short for good behavior, and she was released upon an unsuspecting, COVID-weary public. She burst out with a brand new Twitter account from which she wrote things like, I write better shit from a prison cell in a day than some of these bitches with 50 editors do in a year. She also had a brand new designer wardrobe, which she'd purchased from Net-A-Porter using a prison phone and money left over from her Netflix deal. She ran out of underwear and had her old friend Neff bring her lacy new pairs, which she then Instagrammed. She changed her Instagram display name to Anna Delvey 2.0. She hired a videographer to follow her around. She went to Sephora. She made plans to launch a line of streetwear called The Correction Collection. She tweeted, My rap sheet longer than y'all's dicks can ever be. She even tweeted a link to an article about my book with the caption, Why did they have to make me the cover picture? 
that's actually a question I had myself when I saw the article, since I don't actually have a chapter on Anna Delvey in my book. Anna has always had a problem with how she's portrayed in the press. She hated that first article about her. The embarrassing one in the New York Post, titled Wannabe Socialite Busted for Skipping Out on Pricey Hotel Bills. She has expressed dissatisfaction with her infamous New York Times interview, the one where she said she regretted nothing, arguing that the article misrepresented her, that she only said she didn't have regrets because regret is a pointless emotion since you can't change the past. In one of her blog posts, she wrote two lines that seemed to sum up her attitude towards the media and everyone else who jumps on the Anna Delvey bandwagon. Isn't it the worst when clueless citizens make random assertions and act like they're in the loop? She wrote, don't you just hate listening to them ponder your life here? Now that she was both free-ish and famous, Anna finally had the chance to tell her side of the story— though according to the terms of her Netflix deal, there are certain things she can't talk about. She told Insider that prison is a fraud, saying, it's about who you know. It's kind of like the scene in New York, but amplified. Because if you know the right officers, they're going to get you the right job. And so I had a job in a gym because I just wanted to work out when no one else would go. And they gave it to me. It's all about who you know and what people think of you. She did both an interview and a glamorous fashion shoot with the Sunday Times magazine, and the accompanying article called her a modern-day Gatsby and maddeningly elusive. I enjoy the feeling of control, she told the journalist. She also said, I never thought everyone would be so outraged by it. I understood I was cutting corners and taking shortcuts, but in my mind I was never doing anything criminal. It was very unorthodox, but I was not like, oh, I'm probably going to go to jail. Quotes like these are especially clever because in them, Anna is subtly painting the rest of us as a bunch of squares. She was just hustling hard, being creative. It's us, the stuffy, outraged losers concerned with boring concepts like legality, who are the real problem. By the way, in that same article, the journalist asked Anna's defense lawyer if Anna had tried to manipulate him. Of course, he responded. People like Anna just can't help themselves. But is Anna Delvey 2.0, the one who makes her time in prison part of her brand, just another facade? Several years ago, when Anna was still in prison, the BBC ran an article by a DJ named L.D. who had run into Anna back in 2014. L's side of the story was fairly insignificant. Anna had never actually scammed her. The two barely knew each other. As far as I can tell, people didn't pay much attention to this particular piece. But of everything I've read about Anna, this article was the most compelling. Elle describes a strange, silent girl who wasn't very nice and who was always alone. At one point, Elle discovered Anna sleeping in her car. Twice, Anna invited Elle to a gathering, once to a dinner and once to her hotel bar for drinks, and both gatherings were painfully awkward. When I arrived, she was sitting by herself at the bar, wrote Elle. As people slowly started showing up, it seemed like she barely knew them, as if it was maybe the second time they'd ever met, kind of like us. Everyone just sat around, quietly staring at their own phones. At the second gathering, people were literally not speaking, just sitting in silence and drinking expensive champagne. Anna later tried to get Elle to pay for the champagne. 
This is both the Anna we know and an Anna we don't know. She has enough phone numbers to fill a room with cool, fashionable people. She has enough clout and bluster to order them all expensive champagne. But she doesn't have the power to fill the room with conversation. She's not Gatsby after all. People aren't having a good time at her parties. In article after article, people say that Anna reveals the foibles of the rich, how rich people will believe anyone if they claim to be a trust fund kid, etc. But maybe what Anna actually reveals is that money doesn't necessarily add up to anything. You can drink champagne in a pricey hotel bar with a bunch of New Yorkers who have big Instagram followings, and people will still sit there and feel awkward and look at their phones and leave early. Money can't change that, whether you have it or whether you just say you have it. Out on parole, Anna blustered about on Instagram and Twitter, where people call her queen in the comment section, But she seemed to only really be hanging out with about three people in real life. Her old friend Neff, another woman, and a cameraman who she was presumably paying. In a paparazzi video of her, she's on the phone. But you kind of wonder, is anyone even on the other side? And then her facade came crashing down yet again. On March 25th, she was taken into custody by ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to determine whether or not she should be deported back to Germany, as she had long since overstayed her visa. And an immigration judge there declared that Anna would have to stay in jail for a while longer because she wasn't rehabilitated and was, in fact, a danger to society. Why? Because of her post-prison press tour, that's why. Because of headlines like this one from the BBC. Fake heiress Anna Sorokin. Crime pays, in a way. And because of her Instagram posts. In the last post she uploaded before she was taken into custody again, Anna wrote, They already told you I own this lawless fucking city. That caption was used in court as evidence to show that she hadn't learned her lesson. After she was arrested, a fan commented on this post. Hashtag free Delvey. As of today, the movement hasn't caught on. The end. What do we think of Anna Delvey? Are we impressed by her? Do we feel sad for her? Are we rolling our eyes at her? I vacillate between all these modes. Email me, criminalbroads at gmail.com, and tell me where you land. Before I leave you today, I just wanted to mention one project that Anna Delvey has mentioned a couple times before being taken back into custody. She has said that she wants to work on prison reform. Now, you know here at Criminal Broads, we like a prison reform plotline. We believe strongly in prison reform. Listen to our episode on Sister Eli if you don't know what I'm talking about. So this is something that when Anna talks about it, I'm like, I like this for you. And she argues that she is someone who's seen it from the inside, so she has a unique perspective, which is totally true. And she gave this quote to Insider that I thought was actually kind of profound. This is the Anna Delvey take on prison, okay? Here it goes. 
I feel like it's insane to take people, to lock them up, take everything away from them, and just to expect them to reform. What is that supposed to do for you? You're just deprived of everything. The same solution for everyone, no matter what you've done? When you're a criminal, it's such a different mindset, whether you kill someone or if you sell drugs. The place where you're coming from is not comparable. They have this universal solution for everyone, and that should not be the case. And I feel like Anna is onto something here, this idea of just stripping everything away, locking people up. Anna herself has talked about how she met many murderers in jail and in prison, you know, locking everyone up no matter what crime they did and just sort of expecting it to make them better people. I mean, we've seen so much that prison doesn't really reform people. You know, there aren't enough resources in place to rehabilitate them and help them when they come back into society. Often it just starts this cycle of crime where you just kind of can't escape. You do some time and then you come out and you can't get a job and you have this record and so you go back to crime, etc. Anyway, I was surprised when I read that quote because I was just like, we may be underestimating Anna. She is a very smart woman and I don't know what's going to happen with her. I think she's probably going to be deported. Not that she couldn't work on prison reform from Germany or London or wherever she ends up. Not quite the same as being here in the U.S., but... um. I like the idea of her taking on this as a project, as this kind of celebrity criminal who everyone loves slash loves to hate, who has this snarky attitude. But like if she turned some of that energy into this real project, it could be really cool. Then again, that's what people said about the Anna Delvey Foundation, and we all know how that turned out. All right. Last thing here, I'd like to thank this episode's patrons, the ones who are supporting this episode and my life and my heart are Other Other Amy, hi Other Other Amy, Steph H, Polina K, Zoe K, and Jennifer H. Thank you all so much for being here for your support. Anyone else, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash criminal broads and the link is in the show notes. And we all know where the show notes are now, right? Okay. I love you. Best listeners ever. Don't tell the other podcasts. And it's very fun telling you these stories every week. And I will see you here next time. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.